Thanks, Michael. Uh, great to have that reading uh, in front of us. That's where we're going to camp out tonight. Uh, can I encourage you, we're going to have a time of question and answer at the end of the, um, uh, the, end of the sermon. Uh, not for you. You won't, be under, you won't have to answer the questions. Although that would be fun, wouldn't it? Um, I could just ask you guys some questions and see what answers you could come up with. Uh, no, but if you've got, uh, as we go through, if there are any things that um, catch your attention or that you want to ask afterwards, uh, there'll be an opportunity to do that at the end of the message. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and uh, ask God's help. Father, thanks for this word that's been read. Um, thank you, Lord, that you've preserved it for 2,000 years. We pray, Father, that it might live tonight in our presence and in our hearts because you, the author, are here with us by your Holy Spirit. Do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I've, I've been, uh, th- this is uh, my third time doing this message today, and uh, I've, I've suggested that this opens a bit like a joke. Do you remember jokes? Um, so have you heard the one about the general, the widow, and the prostitute who meet Jesus? There isn't a joke to follow, but it sounds like a joke, doesn't it? No. My, so this is now three times. It's clearly crashed and burned completely. I, I observed that we used to tell jokes as a society. Boys, I don't know if you tell jokes. Do you tell jokes? Yep, occasionally. Um, it, we don't tell jokes anymore. I suspect it's because we're a bit too busy texting memes to each other on social media or whatever. I think that's what's happened to jokes. But we used to tell jokes. So today we're going to have a look at three people who meet Jesus, and we're going to see what happens to them. For each of them, I'm going to take us to some place in the Old Testament that will help us understand afresh what is happening in this situation. And to start off, I want to take us to a, uh, a Syrian general. Now, Peter's pointed out to me that this is a modern Syrian general, but I want you to see that uh, we're going to meet an ancient Syrian general, a guy by the name of Naaman by the name of Naaman. Yes, that really is his name. Uh, And he turns up in 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, a Syrian general has got nothing to do with Israel. In fact, they've just won a battle against Israel. And in the process, Naaman has captured uh, a little Israelite girl. And she's come into his house, and she is uh, essentially a slave in their house. Anyway, Naaman, this famous general, gets leprosy which we learned a couple of weeks ago is going to be a bad thing for him because you can't get rid of leprosy. Anyway, he's got leprosy, and the little girl goes, do you know what? There is someone in Israel who could solve that for you. And the guy goes, who? And he said, there's a prophet in Israel. You should uh, go go and get him to have a look at it. So Naaman, the general, talks to his boss, the king. The king of Syria writes a letter to the king of Israel and says, I'm sending you Naaman, my servant. Please solve his leprosy. The king of Israel freaks out and goes, what is this? Is is Syria looking to have a war with us? I can't solve leprosy. And so he tears his clothes up and it's just a disaster, right? And then uh, Elisha hears that the king's having a hissy fit and says, look, send this guy down to me and you will see that there is still a God in Israel. And so we pick the story up in uh, chapter 5, verse 9. So Naaman went, to, uh, went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, Elisha was a powerful prophet in the Old Testament. So they stop at the door of Elisha's house. Elijah, Elisha sorry, sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. That's a river. And, you will, and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me 
and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I have washed in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Now, that, that's not entirely unexpected. Um, the, notice the prophet doesn't even leave his house, doesn't even come out. He just sends a messenger out to say, hey, mate, just go drop, you know, dip seven times in the river. And Naaman's in fury because he goes, what are you doing? This little puddle, I've got much better rivers back home. This is, this is outrageous. Anyway, his servant says to him, would you have done something hard? If he'd asked to do something hard, would you have done that? He goes, yeah, sure I would have. He said, so if he asks you to do something easy, why don't you just give it a try? Huh, huh, that's a good thought. Goes in the river, washes seven times, and guess what? His leprosy is healed. Here's a foreign general who meets the power of God. I want to take you back to chapter 7. We see uh, in this case... The prophet doesn't meet him. We see he doesn't want God to act because he's grumpy pants. And then we see a miraculous healing happen. Come with me to chapter 7 of Luke. In chapter 7, we read from verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. We've seen Jesus in Capernaum before. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When, Jesus, uh, when he came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Well, I want you to see that this guy, this general, is remarkable. He's remarkable because he's trusted by Rome. Now, obviously, not everybody in the Roman army becomes a centurion kind of makes sense, they're in charge of 100 people in a Roman army. Now, I'm sure you'll correct me, Doug, but I understand that there are 80 soldiers and then 20 staff who basically look after those soldiers that make up the 100, okay? So, but anyway, he's trusted by Rome. He's responsible for 100 people. So he's a pretty important guy. He's trusted by Rome. He's loved by Israel. Notice what it says there. He says that he loves our nation and has built our what? Build our synagogue. Now, to put this in context for you guys, um, imagine American troops in Afghanistan building a mosque for the locals. Sounds unlikely, doesn't it? But here's a Roman soldier. He's a foreigner who loves Israel so much, he builds a synagogue for them. In fact, what we suspect is he's actually a believer in the God of Israel. So he's a Gentile, he's a non-Jew, who's a God-fearer, who loves the God of Israel. He's a very, very unusual man in almost every way that you'd like to see. We see that he actually realized something about Jesus. Have a look with me at 6b and following. That's the second half of verse 6. He was not far from the house, this is Jesus. Jesus was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and this one come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this and he does it. So, so what's the centurion grasped? Well, he's grasped his worth. He goes, I don't even deserve to have you come into my house. Jesus, you can stay up the street. 
I, I'm, I'm your unworthy servant. The other thing that he's grasped is Jesus' authority. He goes, I live in authority land. That's how the military works, right? He says, I've got a boss. He tells me I do stuff. I've got guys under me. I tell them they do stuff. Jesus, you have no one over you. Do you see? Jesus has no one over the top of him. He has recognized Jesus' authority is awesome. It's unbounded. And so he says, you know what, Jesus? You don't even need to come to my house. You can just say it and it'll happen because all authority is owned by you. Do you see that? It's absolutely beautiful. So he recognizes how unworthy he is and how awesome Jesus is. Interestingly enough, I actually think that this centurion is most like us in the Gospels. Can I tell you why? Typically, what happens with the healings in the Gospels is they happen this close. Jesus touches someone. Jesus is standing next to someone. They're really proximate to Jesus. Do you you know where Jesus is today? He's at the right hand of his Father in heaven. He is not here, right? And so whatever we find out about this centurion will be helpful for us because the question is, what can Jesus do at distance from us? He's not sitting in our seats here tonight. He's away from us, just like he's away from this centurion. So so what does he find out? Well, we find out some more about the man and then about Jesus. Have a look at verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So here's the cool thing. This man sees that the the centurion, sorry, Jesus sees the centurion has faith unlike anyone else in Israel. He's amazed at him. The centurion, not a Jew, has realized that Jesus is so powerful, Jesus is amazed at him. And then Jesus does his usual thing and Jesus is amazing. What happens? The servants go home and what do they do? They find the servant well. Did Jesus touch the man? No. Did he go and visit the man? No, he did not. And yet he is healed at distance by the authority and power of Jesus. It's an awesome story. I guess I want us to think tonight, will we show his humble trust without presumption? Let Let me say what I mean by that, presumption. Basically, this man doesn't go, Jesus, you owe me. You owe me to look after my, my, my um, servant. He doesn't presume on that. He's totally humble. He says, Jesus, you're awesome, but if in your wonderful mercy you could save my servant, that would be great. And he shows us the path of humility. And interestingly enough, Jesus praises him for his faith. And he goes, I don't know. How big's your faith? If it was a little pot plant, you know, what kind of tree would it be? One day, we want it to be a towering oak, right? Some of us have got little pot plants. Some of us have got oaks. That's fantastic. Here's the thing. Do we want Jesus to praise our faith, to say, well done, good and faithful servant? We need to follow the example of this centurion. We're going to get to a widow next, and we're going to do that via this little story here. Does anyone know what this is that this man's doing? Something dangerous, it looks like, doesn't it? This is called a glove box, okay? A glove box, not in your car, okay? It's got gloves permanently attached to it. Do you see the things on the outside? And the idea is that you put your hands in through the gloves and then you deal with all the deadly, dangerous things that are inside the box. Do you see how that works? Okay, that's called a glove box. And so the idea is whatever is in there can kill you, so don't touch it. That's basically the idea. I want to show you a story in the Old Testament 
about a guy called Uzzah. Great name. More kids should be called Uzzah, I think. Um, so Uzzah is a, um, is a man who's helping King David out. Now, for this story to be helpful, do you guys remember the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember the Ark? What color is the Ark as a start? It's gold. Does anyone know what it's got inside it? We did this a little while ago, so some people can remember. What's it got? Ten Commandments are inside it. Moses' staff and a jar of manna. That's what's inside. What's on top of it? Does anyone know what's on top of it? Cherubim. They've got winged creatures on top like this. It's a gold box. It's got rings on the side. Do you know what the rings are for? Sorry? Because you put poles through it and you carry it on your shoulder. Who carries the ark? Does anyone know? Priests, the Levites have to carry the ark. So here's the thing. David wants to move the ark and he's having an interesting situation. We pick it up in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Have a listen to this. They moved the ark of God from an Abinadab's house on a new cart. Uh -uh. And Uzzah and Ahio were guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him down because he'd put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Now, guys, that's a scary story, right? Here's the thing. The holy presence of God. The ark was the place where God said, I will dwell. I will be in the midst of you, Israel, in the place where this ark is. Okay? And this man, because they were doing the wrong thing, they had it on a cart, not on the shoulders, but he went to catch God. He went to save God, and it didn't work out well for him. There was a celebrating procession. He goes to save the ark, and touching the ark, unauthorized by God, meant death meant death what happens when the presence of god on earth in the person of his son meets a widow we pick it up in verse 11 have a look with me soon afterward jesus went to a town called nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him as he approached the town gate a dead person was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and a large crowd from the town was with her when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. I want you to see that there are two crowds here. There's one full of faith and life. Do you see it says soon afterwards? So soon after this amazing engagement with the centurion, there's a crowd following along with Jesus. And they've come from Capernaum, right? And they're full of faith and life. And they get to Nain. We'll have them go this way. They get to Nain, okay? And from inside Nain, another procession is coming out. Who's leading the procession? The widow, a widow who has lost everything. She's a widow and she lost her son, which means there is no one to help her. And so this is a, a, a procession full of death and mourning. So they're coming out. And Jesus' happy life, faith train is coming in and they meet at the gate, right? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, we see what happens in verse 13, as, as I just read to you. When Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the beer. That's the 
carrying thing that the dead body was on, okay, the bier. Uh, And the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Here we see Jesus' compassion. His heart went out to her. How beautiful is that? Don't cry, he says. And then we also see Jesus' authority. Um, Now, remember, when we talked about the leprosy man, we said when, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about the man who was cured of leprosy. If you've got leprosy and a clean person touches you, the clean person becomes unclean. That's what happens in the ceremonial rites, okay? If you're a clean, a spiritually clean person, and you touch a dead body or something that's touched a dead body, you become unclean. When the man Uzzah touched the presence of God before he was supposed to, what happened to him? He died. So here's God in a bod, the presence of God, touches a dead man, and what happens? Life. Life happens. That's against all the things that we would expect. Jesus says God isn't dangerous for us anymore. Jesus says God has come to bring life, not death. Do you see that? And so Jesus speaks with incredible authority. And this man, you you can speak to dead bodies all all, all day if you'd like to, but nothing will happen. Jesus says, young man, I say to you, get up. He sat up and began to talk. Does anyone know what he says? No. I just think it's fascinating that he's a talker, right? So what happened to me? Yes. Why am I on top of a, uh, a beer? What are you doing, lads? Why is my mum in black? What's going on? And, and so he starts to talk because he's radically resurrected. Jesus is shown to be awesome here. Have a look at verse 16. They're all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding con- countryside. Jesus is shown to be awesome and caring. So here's the thing. We might know that God is powerful. The question is, when we're suffering, does God care for me? You can be all powerful, God, and far away and not care about me. The question is, do you care? And in this passage here, we see undeniably Jesus cares. He is awesome and he is caring. And we see the reversal of death here and defilement. In other words, Jesus doesn't become unclean. He brings cleanness and wholeness as the Son of God on earth. And he also provides for this mum. She gets her son back so she's no longer poor and impoverished. It's a fantastic story. I want to tell you one more. And it involves Israel. And can I just say this? An R-rated chapter of the Bible. Everyone's like, what? Isn't, isn't it like in Song of Solomon? No. This is a, 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 it's actually a terrible passage. It's in, a, it's in Ezekiel 16. And uh, it's part of a story where Ezekiel is a prophet in the Old Testament. And he's talking to the nation. And God has given him a vision of what it's like to be God caring for Israel. And he says, it's like this. God says, one day I was walking along and I found you as a little baby, still covered in blood from being born. And I, I, I cleansed you. I washed you off. And then I put clothes on you. And then I fed you. And then I cared for you. And you grew up. 
And you kept growing until you become a beautiful young woman and I cared for you. And then instead of being faithful to me, Israel, what you did was you turned away from me, the one who had cared for you, and you turned into a prostitute. You offered yourself to all the other gods of the other nations. You basically despised me. And so in Ezekiel, we see that they've scorned the love of God. Israel has turned away from God and they've, they've lusted after other gods and they've been unrepentant in their rejection of him. Have a listen to Ezekiel 16. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. See, to be a prostitute in Israel was a terrible thing, but it was also the symbol for how unfaithful the nation had been to God. So let's see a story where Jesus meets a prostitute. We pick it up in verse 36, as was read for us. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, we actually have to understand a little bit of the physics, uh, uh, how this actually works. Um, uh, they would lie down for dinner. Maybe some of us would like that, right? We'd like to lie down for dinner. They would lie down for dinner and eat off the table sideways like this. When it was a feast day like this, the house wouldn't have been all locked up. There would have been people coming and going. And so what I want you to see is that this woman was a sinner. She was sinful. And what that basically meant was she was a prostitute, okay? It's not just being euphemistic for the fact she didn't pay her parking fines or something. She was a prostitute. And she found her way into the house because she was a seeker. She wanted to be with Jesus. And when she got to him, so Jesus is lying down like this, she's standing at the end of his feet and weeping, and her tears are washing his feet. And, and she realizes what she's done, and she takes her hair out and wipes his feet clean with her hair. But, but here's the amazing thing. When you take your hair out, that's being a wanton woman, okay? And so she's doubling down on the fact that she's a sinful woman. But you know what? She doesn't care because her obsession, her focus is on who? Jesus. There's no one else there. She came in. She walked into whose house? Who was the guy? Simon is his name. And what was his he was recognized here as a Pharisee. I can guarantee you there has never been a, a prostitute in his house before, right? So he's, to, he's sitting there totally offended and he's worried about what is going on in his house. Simon thinks that Jesus lacks insight. Simon thinks Jesus has blown it. He doesn't know what he's talking about and he believes that he has seen the situation correctly. Um, oh, actually, go, I'll go back. Um, have a look at verse, as, uh, verses 39 and following. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Um, it's really interesting, guys. I reckon everybody in the town knew that she was the prostitute, right? So that's not insightful. I reckon she probably dressed differently to the other people in the town as well. And this guy's going, if he was a prophet, he'd know that this woman is a sinner. 
I'm telling you, everybody who saw her knew she was a sinner. You wouldn't have to be a prophet to pick that up. But I don't know if you guys remember. Do you guys remember in John 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well? Do you remember this? Jesus meets a woman at a well. And he knows everything about her. Do you remember? The man you are with at the moment is not your husband. In fact, you have had five husbands. Do you remember Jesus doing this? So when, when the guy says, if he was a prophet, he'd understand who it is. Well, number one, everybody understands who she is. And number two, Jesus shows us supernatural insight in another situation. He absolutely knows. Okay? He absolutely knows. But have a look what happens. If he was a prophet, she says, uh, he says, this man would know who this is. Okay? Uh, Jesus answered him. Uh, <laughs> Notice that he hasn't spoken. Anyway, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. At that point, can I just say, if you're hanging out with Jesus, be very afraid. Simon, I've got something to tell you. Yes, speak. What have you got to tell me? He said. So, so two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. Now, I know you don't know what a denarii is. It's a day's pay. So 500 denarii is more than a year's pay. It's a year and a, and a good amount. It's a lot of money. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? This is, not a, this is not rocket science, is it, guys? Someone had a 500 denarii debt cancelled and someone had a 50 denarii debt cancelled. Who would love more? Ooh. The 500 one. Okay. You have judged correctly, Jesus is telling you. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? In other words, he's going, I, I want to point her out to you. Have you noticed her? Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not ki give me a kiss. That would be a kiss of greeting, guys, if you're, if you're worried about that. Um, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. That, that would be a sign of favor. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as, has, as her great love has shown but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. This is a really interesting story. Jesus doesn't lack insight. Jesus alone sees correctly. And although Simon thought he saw correctly, in answering Jesus' question, he gains new insight. The keys to this story are faith and forgiveness. Jesus commends her for her faith and says to her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who is this who forgives sins? And then Jesus said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this is the amazing part of this story. A Pharisee is supposed to be the most righteous person in Israel. And in his house walks a prostitute. And the model of what it means to be righteous in Israel is a faith-filled prostitute. Are you with me? So if you want to see a picture of faithfulness in Israel, it's not the man who's a Pharisee. It's the woman who's a prostitute, but has what? Faith. Faith is what marks her out as a model for all of Israel. And her slate is wiped clean. Isn't this beautiful? And so at the end, Jesus is able to say to her, go in peace, shalom. Go in peace. Know the favor and the love of God in your life. She couldn't have found that anywhere else. And, and what I want to show you tonight, guys, is the size of our debt determines our worship. 
The size of our debt determines our worship. What's our debt? What do we owe God? It says in Romans 5.8 that, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How big a deal was our sin? Well, I'm pretty young. I haven't done too many bad things. Some of you have been around a bit longer. You've got a bigger debt, obviously. Here's the thing, guys. Our sins were so significant, they didn't need Jesus to say, they're there, it'll be okay. No, the way our sins were paid for is on the cross with the blood of the Son of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God made his son take up sin for us and die. That's the debt that we owe. Well, what's the implication of this debt thing? I want to to give you a little balance here, right? At this end of the scale, if that's the size of my debt, okay, God should be thankful that I'm on his team. God, I want you to know I'm at church tonight. That's a pretty big deal. It's Sunday night. I could be home watching useless television. But I'm here. God, you should count that on my... You should be very happy that I'm here. If we've got a small debt, God should be thankful for me. If, however, perhaps, you and I have a bigger debt, if our sin is significant, if our rebellion against God matters, then in reality, I will be thankful to God for his forgiveness offered to me. Are you with me? And if I've had a a little debt forgiven, then when it comes to, to responding to God, I'll say, God... You can have a little eyedropper of my good things back. Aren't I being good to you? Just, just a little bit, God. You can have a little bit of my good things. Because it wasn't a big deal for you to forgive me. But if we realize that our debt was massive, that it cost him his son, then instead we get our alabaster jar of perfume and we pour it all out. Do you see? Why would she do that? It literally was worth, I, I, I don't know, it, it would have been worth hundreds of denarii. And she pours it out on Jesus because she goes, I can't get what you will give me anywhere else. And so she lavishes her love on Jesus and says, I'm pouring it all out, all out for you. Now, why does that matter? Because in chapter 6, Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Are you and I stingy towards God? Or are we generous towards him? Do we pour our lives out for him? With the measure we use, it'll be measured to us. Well, what do these interactions teach us? Well, the the centurion teaches us to trust God at distance. He has power and authority to act in our lives, even at distance. And it reminds us that we need to trust him with humility. I'm not even worthy to have you come into my house, Jesus. What, What does the story about the widow tell us? That the God who is all powerful in the universe will comfort and care for the brokenhearted. And he will do so with his powerful presence. How is Jesus going to comfort us today? He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will send the Holy Spirit as a comforter to be with you. Today, I want you to know the comfort of God because he is here with us by his Holy Spirit. Thirdly, what do we learn from the story of the prostitute? We learn mercy. And we should respond in worship. If God would forgive me, how much more should I pour my life out in thankfulness to him? So do you want to know the praise of God? Well done, good and faithful servant. Do we want to know the provision of God? Do we want to know the peace of God? 
then we need to be the people who understand that those who see their debt as forgiven will love much. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are powerful and yet you're present. You are awesome and you have authority. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the debt that you have forgiven us and we pray that we might pour our lives out in worship to you. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, there's three people. A centurion, a widow, and a prostitute meeting Jesus. Have we got any questions that we'd like to ask to follow that up? Got some questions, guys? Things that you want to ask about? Carry. I'll probably put the people who heard it, Claire. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. You can come and chat to me afterwards. Yeah, Kara. Um, it's not really in the passage, but you can just shed some light. So if the third woman, the prostitute, um, was forgiven and her debt was paid, uh, what would happen to her in her life once she's transformed and turned around? Um, does she then, she would have no family, I presume, and no community except maybe other women. What happens to her in that situation as she turns to Jesus? And how do we love people that might be in a situation where they've had a lot of sin in their life and turn to Jesus? Do we come around them as a community to love them? Or Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. it's a great question. <laughs> um, well, Carrie, my answer would be that the, the passage doesn't tell us, so we'll speculate. Is that okay? It actually doesn't tell us what happened to her, so we'd have to think into that space. Do, do you remember the other day it said that there were a whole bunch of women who were supporting Jesus? supplying his needs. I don't know if you remember that. It's in the passage here. Um, I suspect a woman who is walking away from the only way that she could have made income, which was prostitution, definitely needed friends and family. The people who were following Jesus, who are his disciples, I assume would have picked her up and drawn her into the, the family of believers for all intents and purposes. Um, it would have been really hard for her. Um, but Carrie, you and I actually um, have a story about this. I was actually saving it up for Easter, so forgive me if I tell it again, but here's, here's the situation. Um, a, a, a number of years ago, a number of years ago, I don't know how long ago, a long time ago, Kara and I, uh, Kara was living in the city, and she was involved with an organisation called Jesus Cares, who was feeding people in King's Cross, right? And that would happen on a Saturday night. They'd drive into King's Cross, and they would uh, get bread and food and soup, I think, Kara, yeah, and give um, food to people in King's Cross, who were on the streets there. And I happened to go and join them for a couple of Saturday nights until it became too hard. I was working on Saturdays and we were getting home at like two o'clock in the morning. I just couldn't do it anymore. But on this last night I was there, I ended up at the end of the evening in this little minivan which said, Jesus loves, no, something like that. Jesus loves you or something on the side of the van. It was brilliant. I loved doing it, right? Anyway, we're in this van and um, the guy in the front is telling me, oh, this girl who's sitting next to you, um, she's an ex-prostitute who has come to the Lord through the ministry and, sorry, I'm about to tell you the story. Um, and uh, she has uh, been fed, but then heard the good news about Jesus and she's turned from her life and she's now part of this ministry handing out food to other people on the street. I'm thinking, amazing story, right? And she turns to me and she says, I'll never forget it. She says, I'm not an ex-anything. 
I'm a new creation in Jesus. She wouldn't see her life as defined by her past anymore because the forgiveness, the hope, the fresh start, the new life that Jesus has offered her meant that she was not an ex-anything. And so carry a long way around to say, how does she move forward? Because profoundly at her core, her worth is not defined by her past, but by who she is in the eyes of God. Do you see that? Now guys, I've got to tell you, that was one of the most extraordinary experiences for me to see this woman who is marked in every way by her history say to her, that's not me anymore. I'm a new creation. And when we call the church new life, that's what I'm hoping for people to find. Yeah. Is there another question? I might stop there. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Stuart.